Thank you, Ephraim. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here. It's good to be together. Many of you know that uh, my wife and I had COVID a couple of weeks ago. Um, we've tested negative now for over two weeks, so we're not contagious. Well, at least not with COVID. Can't vouch for everything else. Uh, my wife is fully recovered. Praise the Lord for that. Um, unfortunately, I have some lingering symptoms, and I've heard that they can last for weeks, but trusting the Lord that that will not be the case. Uh, but one of the things that affects me is uh, a lingering cough and a bit of an issue with my throat. Um, so this is the first sermon I'm trying since uh, I'm recovering from COVID. We got through the eschatology study on Wednesday by the Lord's grace, and it was amazing. Right at 8.30, I couldn't get another word out. So, you know, when the Lord says, Dave, you've said enough, that's probably when my throat will be unable to say anything else. But the Lord is really, really good. And for any of us who have experienced limitations or physical difficulties, you know, it really is an opportunity to trust the Lord. You know, even as Howard was sharing with us, you know, the Lord doesn't want us to hope in him only when things are going well. You know, the Lord wants us to put our hope in him even when things are not going well. And of course, one of the things the Lord reminded me of is, you know, it's only been, I think, three and a half weeks, which compared to what some people have suffered is not much at all. Not much at all. I mean, we have folks that we know well that have suffered for years. But the Lord gives grace. He gives grace. And as Howard reminded us, this life is not it. It's not. What's coming? That's it. This life is so fleeting. It's so temporary. Even if we live to a hundred, which for many of us seems like a long time, compared to eternity, that's nothing. It's nothing. So whatever the Lord calls us to experience, endure, suffer through in this life, and of course, that's totally up to the Lord. You know, in one way or another, we will all suffer. That's what the scriptures make clear. But how we suffer, what we suffer, how long we suffer, that's all up to the Lord. That's all up to the Lord. But whatever that is, he gives grace. He gives grace. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just want to thank you so much that you do everything well. Lord, even when it comes to something as, 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 as seemingly contradictory as what you allow us to suffer, how you allow us to suffer, Lord, even in that, you do all things well. And as we just read from Romans 5, ultimately, suffering produces hope. That's what we want to see happening in our lives, Lord God. Whatever you have called us to suffer, however long you have called us to suffer, God, what we want to see is by your grace and by the work of your spirit in our lives, we want to see that producing hope. And so I pray, Lord God, that we would be a people that are full of hope, full of hope, because we know what is coming. We know what is coming. 
And as we will see today, Lord, you absolutely 100% assure us that what you have promised, that what is coming, it will come. There's no doubt. There's no uncertainty. You have absolutely assured us that everything that we are hoping for in you, that you have promised, will come to pass. So we thank you for that, Lord. We thank you for that. And God, we just pray that in a city, in a neighborhood, in a country, in a world that is so full of hopelessness and so full of despair, that your hope would shine through us. That the unbelievers in our lives would see the hope that only Jesus can provide and that they would see it in us. Lord, help us to put your hope on display. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to do that. And finally, Father, I just want to thank you for another opportunity to be in your word. And Lord, what a blessing it is that you speak to us through your word. And we pray now, Lord Jesus, that you would be our teacher, that you would help us to rightly understand your word, that your spirit would continue to give wisdom and understanding and discernment and help us, Lord God, to rightly apply your word to our lives. Help us to think differently, to speak differently, to act differently, to respond to circumstance differently because of what we see in you and in your word. And we pray all of this, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen. Well, most of you are probably aware at this point that we have been reading together the book of Leviticus. How many of you have been reading Leviticus? Because we are now in our, I think, sixth week of reading Leviticus. We have one more week of Leviticus. Today's message will come from Leviticus. Next Sunday's message will come from Leviticus. And then after that, starting a week from tomorrow, we're going to jump into something a little bit different. So Leviticus is 27 chapters. Not sure where you stand. How many of you have at least gotten to Leviticus chapter 10? Leviticus chapter 10? Leviticus chapter 20? How many have finished the book? How many have gotten to Leviticus 27? All right. Excellent. Excellent. Remember, this time we're doing our corporate reading a little bit differently. We're inviting you to read at your own pace. However, if you're still right now on Leviticus 1 or 2, your pace probably was a little bit slow for the book and the time frame that you were given. So you have some time to make it up. Like I say, my message today is going to come from Leviticus. Uh, Ephraim's message next week is going to come from Leviticus. And then that will conclude our corporate time of looking at this book together. But if you've been reading Leviticus, there's a lot of, of central themes. There's, of course, a lot of details and today we're going to look at a chapter and look at some of the details. But, you know, one of the things that, that Carl and Ted did in previous messages about Leviticus really, really well was kind of highlight some of the large themes of Leviticus. You know, sometimes when you're, when you're in the nitty-gritty of it, it can be a little bit challenging. You know, 
when, when we're hearing how the priests were to, you know, dissect the animals that were being offered for sacrifice and what the priest was to do with the different parts of the animal. You know, that can, that can get a little bit challenging. But when you take a step back and look at some of the larger themes of Leviticus, one of the ones that has just really resonated with me is that when Israel received the contents of Leviticus. They would not have received it as a book. They would have received it spoken. You know, frequently you see in the book of Leviticus, then the Lord said to Moses. One occasion it says, and the Lord said to Moses and Aaron. Just in terms of the history of Israel, the book of Leviticus was given while Israel was still camped at Sinai. They have not moved yet. So this Leviticus is a continuation of Israel being camped at Sinai. Remember in Exodus 20, the Lord gives the Ten Commandments. Then there's the instructions for building the tabernacle. But Leviticus is the continuation of what God spoke to the nation while they were still encamped at Sinai. And then when you get to the book of Numbers, that's when we actually see them begin to move from Sinai on their way to the Promised Land, but then the 40 years in the wilderness. And then by the time you get to Deuteronomy... The 40 years has finished and they're about to enter the promised land. But Israel is encamped at Sinai, having received all of the revelation from Exodus 20 onward and the contents of Leviticus. So as they were hearing Moses repeat for them what the Lord had said to him, I think one of the things that would have been clear to every Israelite is that the entirety of my life should be centered on the Lord. The entirety of my life should be centered on the Lord. The, law, the, the Leviticus tells us how Israel was to worship. Leviticus tells us how they were to have relationship within their family. Leviticus tells us how they were to have relationship one with another beyond their families. Leviticus tells us how they were to plant their crops. Leviticus tells us how they were to weave their clothes. Leviticus tells us how they were to cut their hair, how they were to shave their beards. Leviticus tells us how they were to deal with infirmity and sickness and disease. Leviticus tells us what they were allowed to eat. So really, when you take a step back from Leviticus, one of the messages that is absolutely unmistakably clear is that God expects every aspect of our life to be controlled and centered on him. And if anything, the coming of Jesus doesn't relax that. The coming of Jesus actually only intensifies it. Remember, the law said that you shouldn't murder, but Jesus said you shouldn't even have hatred in your heart. The law said you shouldn't commit adultery, but Jesus said you shouldn't even have lust in your heart. So if anything, the arrival of Jesus Christ doesn't relax the expectations of Leviticus. The arrival of Jesus Christ actually intensifies the expectations of Leviticus. And so if Leviticus made it clear to Israel, every aspect of your life is to be lived for me. Every aspect of your life is to be centered on me. How much more so for us as followers of Jesus Christ, should our lives be focused and centered on him? Just a couple of quick examples. Jesus is not opposed to us enjoying entertainment, 
But I think Leviticus raises the question, that show, that movie, that podcast, would Jesus want you to be listening to that? Would Jesus want you to be watching that? Again, he's, he's not opposed to movies. You know, we're, not, we're not talking about you know, throughout your TV. I mean, if you want to, that's fine. But the question I think that Leviticus challenges us with is, would Jesus want you to be watching that? Would Jesus want you to be listening to that? Would Jesus want you to be exposing yourself to that? That's, to me, one of the clear messages of Leviticus. Every component of our life belongs to him. Whether it's the things that we consider, quote-unquote, spiritual, like coming to a Sunday service, praying, reading the Bible, talking to others about Jesus, but all the other stuff as well. Grocery shopping, our daily commute, our time doing yard work if we have yards. I don't have a yard, I live in the city. But Leviticus reminds us everything, everything is to be done for the Lord. Everything is to be done with Jesus in mind. Remember, the arrival of Jesus doesn't make that lax or minimize that. The arrival of Jesus actually intensifies that. And so God simply wants us to live the entirety of our lives before him. God wants us to live the entirety of our lives before him. To live the entirety of our lives aware of his presence. Now again, that doesn't mean he expects us to become monks and nuns and isolate ourselves. But it does mean that he has a say in everything we do. Or at least he should. There should be no area of our life that is not ultimately under the lordship of Jesus Christ. You know, that song that we sang this morning, I don't know if Carl had it picked out or if it just came to him as we were worshiping, but I surrender all. You know, it's an easy sentence to say, (laughs) but at least for me personally, it's a little bit harder to live out. But as I read Leviticus, I want to. As I read Leviticus, I want to surrender all. I do. Now, do I do that every day? No, probably not. You can ask my wife who lives with me. You can ask my oldest daughter who lives with me. You know, they see me every day. Yeah, probably I don't surrender all to Jesus every day the way I should. But at least Leviticus, one of the good fruits of reading Leviticus is the Lord reminding us. That's how I want to live my life. That's how I want to live my life. So anyways, that's just a quick introduction to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 23. Leviticus chapter 23. Some of you I know from raising hands before have gotten there. Some of you have not. Leviticus chapter 23 is a very long chapter. So I debated whether or not to read it all. We're not not going to read it all. But basically, Leviticus chapter 23 is the calendar that the Lord established the nation of Israel. There's a couple other passages of scripture that address this. Exodus chapter 23. There's a few verses there where the Lord begins to establish it. Numbers chapter 28 and 29 is the longest dive into Israel's calendar. And then also in Deuteronomy 16. So if you want to look up some cross-references, Exodus 23, Numbers 28 and 29, Deuteronomy 16. So if The Lord goes over the calendar four separate occasions in these four books. 
It probably was something that he wanted to make sure Israel was aware of, that Israel understood, and that he was serious when he said, Israel, this is how I want you to live out your days and weeks and months and years. So what we're going to do today is we're going to consider Israel's calendar. But the second half of the title of this message is Israel's calendar and the ministry of Jesus Christ. Israel's calendar and the ministry of Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do first it was we're going to read some selected passages from Leviticus 23 and try to, as best as we can, as, as New Testament folks, understand Israel's calendar. Now, I don't expect you to have it memorized. I don't think the Lord expects us to have it memorized. But at least to kind of understand how the weeks and the months and the years would have unfolded had Israel chosen to do what the Lord asked. You know, one of the things when you're reading Leviticus is you realize that once they get into the promised land, most of this stuff they never even came close to doing. You know, it's just, it's so disappointing because when you look at the kind of society that the law of Moses established, it was a glorious society. It was an incredible society. If Israel had ever actually been able to do what the law required, it would have been a, a nation that the world had never seen before. But of course, as soon as they get into the promised land, we see it's just a beginning of constantly falling short, constantly falling short. But anyways, Leviticus chapter 23, let's just read the first couple of verses. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, these are my appointed feasts, the appointed feasts of the Lord, which you are to proclaim as sacred assemblies. So what are you saying there is throughout a calendar year, there were going to be specific anchor points. There were going to be specific things that were to be recognized and kept by Israel as a calendar year unfolded. Picking it up then in verse 3. There are six days when you may work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of rest, a day of sacred assembly. You are not to do any work. Wherever you live, it is a Sabbath to the Lord. So to understand Israel's calendar, you absolutely have to understand the bedrock foundation of Israel's calendar was the Sabbath. That goes all the way back to creation itself. In six days God created, on the seventh day he rested. The foundation of Israel's calendar was the Sabbath. Six days of work, a seventh day of rest. Nothing altered that. Nothing changed that. The festivals and the other holy days that God is going to explain were added to it, but never altered that pattern of six and one. Six days of work, seventh day of rest. This was to be the absolute foundation of how Israel marked time. And it was a constant reminder that God had created everything. A constant reminder that God had created everything. In six days, 
he had created the universe, and on the seventh day, he rested. It also was a reminder, if you look at how this Sabbath commandment is given in Deuteronomy, it also was a reminder that God had delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt. God says, remember, you were slaves, and I rescued you. Slaves work seven days a week. Slaves have no day of rest. So the Sabbath not only reminded Israel that God had created everything, the Sabbath reminded Israel that they had been slaves and God had set them free. They were no longer to live the life of a slave. They were no longer to work seven days a week. So what you see is that this foundation of Israel's calendar was something that was beautiful, was something that was powerful, was something that was so theologically significant. If Israel had ever really endeavored to keep the pattern of six and one, every week they would have been reminded, God created the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and everything that is in them. And God delivered us from bondage. God delivered us from slavery. We are slaves no more. How powerful. How powerful the Sabbath should have been. How powerful the Sabbath could have been. Let's continue. Picking it up in verse 4. Again, just sort of a summary verse. These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days, you must eat bread made without yeast. So every year, how was Israel's year to begin? In the first month of Israel's year, what was to take place? The Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. At twilight on the 14th day of the first month. Now, Israel's calendar, of course, was a little bit different than ours. So the first month for Israel would have been equivalent roughly to our March or April. Israel's calendar was an agricultural calendar. And so the beginning of the year was the beginning of the agricultural year from that perspective. So the first month in Israel's calendar would have been roughly our March or April. So every spring, at twilight of the 14th day of the first month of their calendar year, Israel was to keep the Passover. And then starting on the 15th, at twilight of the 15th day, for seven days, they were to eat bread without leaven. And again, most of us are quite familiar that was to remember and celebrate the hasty deliverance out of bondage in Egypt. They didn't have time for yeast to work itself through the dough that would become bread. So they ate bread without yeast, reminding them that they left in haste. Reminding them that they left in haste. And for seven days following the Feast of Passover, they would also keep the Feast of unleavened bread. Now it's interesting because jumping down to verse 9, 
Leviticus adds something at this time of the year that Exodus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy do not mention. Beginning in verse 9, it said, The Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you, and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain you harvest. So right about this time in spring, March, April, the first sprouts are beginning to come up and the first grain is starting to ripen. And what the Lord says is that very, very first sheaf of grain that you see, cut it off and bring it to me. And it actually was to be a wave offering. So the priest was to take it into the presence of the Lord and he was to wave it before the Lord. So the very, very beginning the very, very first sprout of, it would have been barley. Barley came in first in Israel, then came wheat. So it would have been the first of the barley harvest. They were to take it and they were to wave it before the Lord. A wave offering. Now it's interesting because this is the only account of Israel's calendar that goes into this detail about this first fruit wave offering. Okay, let's jump down now to verse 15. It says, From the day after the Sabbath, the day you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, count off seven full weeks. So Israel is celebrating Passover. Israel is celebrating unleavened bread sometime around March, April. Then at about the same time, close to that time, that first sheaf of barley grain pops up. They cut it off. They wave it before the Lord. Now, the very next Sabbath after that, they are to count off seven Sabbaths. So they are to count off seven seven-day weeks. Every time a Sabbath rolls around, seven days have passed. It's interesting because in Hebrew, the word for week is the number seven. And sometimes the word Sabbath means a week. That's how much God was saying the Sabbath anchors your calendar. The Sabbath anchors your life. So from that waving of that first sheaf of barley grain, they were to wait till the next Sabbath. And then starting at that Sabbath, they were to count off seven Sabbaths or seven sevens or seven weeks, 49 days. And then on the 50th day, that first day after that seventh Sabbath, after the grain had been waved in the presence of the Lord, they were to celebrate a feast. And in Leviticus, it is referred to as the Feast of Weeks. The Feast of Weeks. It's interesting, in Exodus, this is called the Feast of Harvest. So it gets a little confusing because most of these feasts have multiple names. And when we get to the third feast, it gets even a little bit more confusing. But in Exodus, the second major feast is called the Feast of Harvest. Normally, it is called the Feast of of weeks. Most of us know it as Pentecost, because Pentecost is similar to the Greek word for 50. Pentecoste is the Greek word for 50. That's where we get the Greek name Pentecost or Pentecoste, which would have been the 50-day or 50th day festival. Because remember, they counted off seven sevens, and then on the 50th day, they celebrated the Feast of Weeks. Now, looking specifically at verse 17, uh, 
I forgot how small the numbers are up here. Verse 17, it says, From wherever you live, bring two loaves made of two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, baked with yeast, as a wave offering of first fruits to the Lord. So again, part of the offering of the Feast of Weeks was an offering of the first fruits, that first part of the harvest. Jumping down to verse 20, the priest is to wave the two lambs before the Lord as a wave offering together with the bread of the first fruits. So this is something I had never seen before. There is a wave offering of the first fruit associated with the time of Passover and unleavened bread. But the more well-known wave offering and sacrifice of first fruits is associated with the Feast of Weeks. And again, first fruits is probably not something we're familiar with, but by the end of this message, hopefully we're very familiar with it. The idea of first fruits is that you give the first of the harvest to the Lord. You dedicate, you sacrifice, you offer, you wave before the Lord the first of the harvest. Now, a couple of things were being represented by this. First, you were just thanking the Lord. Because once that first grain started to ripen, you had great confidence that you were going to eat that year. You know, sometimes we hear the scriptures talk about the early rains and the latter rains. Once Israel's agricultural year ended in the seventh month, which is about September, October for us, those, those winter months and, and, and fall months, Israel was hoping and praying for rain. Because if they didn't receive the early rains and the latter rains, then that first fruit would probably not appear. And without supermarkets and grocery stores and warehouses, if the crop didn't come in, you were in big trouble. You were in big trouble. So when Israel took this first and offered it to the Lord, they were thanking the Lord. Thanking the Lord for his faithfulness for the crop that had come in. <coughs> the Lord can't be saying I'm done yet. But another thing, by giving the first to the Lord, they were trusting the Lord that the full harvest would come in. Because even once the crop started to ripen, and even once there was that first sign of the grain coming in, it could still be devastated by plague, by locusts, by marauders. We see this happening in Israel's history. So you were dedicating the first to the Lord, trusting him that he would oversee the entire harvest to come in. So at the beginning, you were saying, Lord, we're grateful for the beginning, but we're trusting you for the rest. One other thing, at least, and there's probably more, by giving the first to the Lord, you were basically saying, Lord, the entire harvest is yours. One of the most helpful ways to understand the Old Testament system of sacrifice is Israel was expected to give the Lord their first and their best. A lot of details that we see in Leviticus, particularly chapters 1 to 10, but a helpful summary of that Give the Lord your first, give the Lord your best. So this first fruits was part of that. Now, as we work our way through Leviticus 23, there's a couple holidays that we're not going to read the description of. 
on the first day of the seventh month, there was a holiday where trumpets were to be blown. It was a day of shouting. It was a day of rejoicing. The first day of the seventh month. Now, the seventh month, this is like September, October. So the agricultural year is winding down. So this is what we know, of course, as the Feast of Trumpets. Then on the tenth day of the seventh month was the Day of Atonement. That was given to us in great detail in Leviticus chapter 16. It's interesting because Leviticus chapters 10 to 15 talked about many, many, many of the ways that Israel could become defiled. Sometimes through sin, but sometimes through things that were not sinful. You know, there were a lot of things that could make an Old Testament Israelite unclean that were not necessarily morally sinful. There were some things that made them unclean that were morally sinful. If you had a member of your family died, Contact with a dead body made you unclean. You could not approach the presence of the Lord. So in Exodus, excuse me, in Leviticus chapters 10 to 15, you know, it's the one about all the different skin diseases. It's the one about the food that you can eat. It's the one about bodily discharges. I was teasing Ted Lewis. I said, now, Ted, I really hope you're going to teach on that chapter in Leviticus about bodily discharges. But he declined to do that. Um, but all of these things that could make Old Testament Israel unclean. And then all of a sudden, Leviticus 16, the Day of Atonement. This is what cleanses you. These are all of the things that can make you unclean. These are all of the things that can keep you from the presence of the Lord. And here now is the Lord's provision to atone for that, to clean that. So you see this incredible wisdom in the structure of Leviticus. So anyways, the day of atonement, 10th day of the seventh month. The day of trumpets, the first day of the seventh month today is, is known as Rosh Hashanah, uh, the Jewish New Year. It's seen as probably the civil new year because remember, from an agricultural standpoint, from a festival standpoint, the Jewish new year begins in spring, March, April. But it seems as if Israel probably recognizes two separate new years. The day of trumpets would have been seen as the civil new year, the first month in the spring when Passover and unleavened bread were celebrated, probably was the agricultural or religious new year. But then the festival that we're interested in Picking it up in verse 33, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to the Israelites, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, the Lord's Feast of Tabernacles begins, and it lasts for seven days. The first day is a sacred assembly. Do no regular work. For seven days present offerings made to the Lord by fire, and on the eighth day hold a sacred assembly and present an offering made to the Lord by fire. It is the closing assembly. Do no regular work. So as the agricultural year was concluding, as the final harvest was being brought in, this would have been the second barley harvest, the second wheat harvest. This would have been fruits like grapes and olives and figs and dates. So this is the final harvest. This is the end of the agricultural year for Israel. So sometimes this feast is referred to as the feast of ingathering. The final bringing in of the remaining crops to be ripened into the barns to provide for Israel during the fall winter that was about to come. This is also referred to as the feast of tabernacles. It's also referred to as the feast of booths. So anytime you hear any of that, if you meet a Jewish person, they may recall, call it Sukkot, because Sukkot is the Hebrew word for a booth or a tabernacle. But for seven days, Israel was to live in temporary shelters, in booths or tabernacles or tents or Sukkot. 
And of course, that was to remind them that when God brought them out of slavery, they were living in tents. When God brought them out of slavery, they were living in tents. So that ended the calendar year for Old Testament Israel. What Deuteronomy emphasizes and what Exodus makes clear as an introduction is that there were three holidays that were the most significant in terms of Israel gathering in a central location that the Lord would choose. Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, then the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and then the Feast of Tabernacles or Ingathering. So this is a brief look at Israel's calendar. But of course we understand that all of this was given before Christ came. Leviticus was given about 1,500 years before Christ came. So when Christ comes into the world in connection with the Old Testament, there's a couple of things that sort of help me just get a big picture. On the one hand, when Christ comes into the world, he doesn't change anything in the sense that God is still holy, God still has expectations, God is still willing to forgive, God still wants relationship with his people. You know, these are all things we see throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. So when Jesus comes into the world, he doesn't invent something totally new. And yet, on the other hand, when Jesus comes into the world, he changes everything. So again, I know it sounds like I'm contradicting myself. On the one hand, Jesus doesn't change anything. God the Father is still God the Father. The God of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel is the Father of Jesus. He has not changed. God has not changed. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the expectation to be holy, the expectation to live the entirety of your life in the presence of the Lord, the expectation to be different than the nations around you, none of that changes when Jesus comes into the world. And yet on the other hand, Jesus changes everything. So, of course, the question that we have for ourselves this morning, oh, this afternoon, is how does Jesus, what what does Jesus do with Israel's calendar? What does Jesus do with Israel's calendar? Let's start by going to the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. This is right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. For many of us, the Sermon on the Mount is one of our favorite teachings of Jesus, some of the most challenging expectations of Jesus, but certainly something that a lot of us are very familiar with. So Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 and 18. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. Jesus did not come to abolish Leviticus. Now some of us, as we're reading Leviticus, we might hope for that. We might hope that Jesus came to abolish Leviticus because it can be tedious. But Jesus actually says, don't think I came to abolish the law and the prophets. He did not. So here is that aspect of Jesus didn't change anything. Jesus didn't abolish Leviticus. But what does he go on to say? I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's where he changes everything. I didn't come to abolish Leviticus. Doesn't change anything. I came to fulfill Leviticus. 
changes everything. It's both. It's both. But look at what he goes on to say. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter nor the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Why are we reading Leviticus? Because Jesus said Leviticus is not going to pass away, not even the smallest pen stroke of the law. The word that Jesus uses there is the word yod, or what we use as iota. Yod is actually the smallest Hebrew letter. It's just kind of like our apostrophe. It's the yah sound. Jesus says not even a single little apostrophe from Leviticus is going to pass away. The second word that he uses there, we're not 100% sure what it means. There's a little, little tail stroke on some Hebrew letters. Some people think it's that. But in other words, what Jesus is saying is the smallest little fractional pen stroke of Leviticus and Exodus and the entirety of the Old Testament, none of that's going to pass away. Not until the heavens and the earth pass away. So if, if you think that we don't have an obligation to keep Leviticus, you're wrong. Everything in Leviticus is binding on us. But binding on us as it is fulfilled in Christ. That's the key. I would say most followers of Jesus don't think of the law this way. They either think of it as something that's old and out of date and we don't need it, or they draw a straight line from the law to themselves. Both of those are incorrect. Even when you're looking at the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments are completely binding. They are completely binding only as they are fulfilled in Jesus. Now, I already gave you this earlier. How does Jesus fulfill the commandment against murder? He intensifies it. He makes it not your outward action only, but your frame of mind. Don't be angry. How does Jesus fulfill the law of adultery? He intensifies it. It's not just your outward behavior. It's what's in your heart. But you see, Jesus right there is telling us even the Ten Commandments only apply to you as they are fulfilled in me. Now, there are huge portions of the moral law of the Old Testament that Jesus intensifies. But there are other aspects of the law. I shouldn't say moral. All of it's moral. There are other aspects of the law where we need to do some work. How does Jesus fulfill this aspect of the law? So, for example, Leviticus says, don't wear a garment made of two different weaves of cloth. So, uh, you know, I don't even know clothes, like cotton and polyester blend, whatever, I, you know, whatever. You weren't allowed to do that. Now, is that still a reasonable expectation on us? How does Jesus fulfill that law? You weren't allowed to plant two kinds of seeds together. You can't just blow that off. But you can't just say that applies to us as God gave it before Christ came. What you have to do is a lot harder. You have to say, how does Christ fulfill this? Because he fulfills all of the law, all of the prophets. It's all, all, all fulfilled in him. So all of it is binding on us. All of it is binding on us. All the laws of sacrifice, what you were to do with the kidney and the fat tail and the liver and the hide and the, 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 you know, the dung that was in the intestines, all of that still applies to us. 100% applies to us. Why? Because Jesus didn't abolish that. He did not abolish that. He fulfilled it. 
So then how do we as Christians, how do we as followers of Jesus keep the law as it is fulfilled in him? That's the question we need to be asking. Not just ignoring it, not just trying to draw a straight line from the law of Moses to us, but drawing a line from the law of Moses to Jesus. Every iota, every yod, every pen stroke, drawing a line from that to Jesus, and then the law through Jesus to us. That's the task we have as followers of Jesus. Now, fortunately, the New Testament gives us a lot of help. The New Testament gives us a lot of help. So let's look at that. Let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. This is specifically how Jesus fulfills Israel's calendar, because that's what we were looking at. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. Is everyone there? Colossians 2, 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat. Leviticus chapter 11. These are the animals you can eat. These are the animals you can not eat. That's what Paul is referring to. And Deuteronomy as well. That's what he's referring to. Well, what did Jesus have to say about clean and unclean foods? What did God have to say to Peter in that vision of the, 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 the rug or the carpet or the sheet coming down? So in other words, now we're thinking Leviticus 11, but as it's fulfilled in Jesus. As it is fulfilled in Jesus. So therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. Or with regard to a religious festival. We were just reading about those. Passover, unleavened bread, Feast of Weeks or Pentecost. Tabernacles are in gathering. Paul is writing the Colossians, don't let anyone judge you in these things. What else? Or new moon celebrations. Now, most of us read that and we think, oh, that must be some you know, weird, demonic, pagan practice. No. Israel's calendar was a lunar calendar. Every month had 30 days because the cycle of the moon is 30 days. So if you look at numbers, there was actually to be a sacrifice made to the Lord at the beginning of each new month, each new moon. So Paul is actually not referring a pagan practice. He's talking about the first of the month celebration that Israel was to keep according to the lunar cycle. Now, of course, you guys can probably imagine 12 30-day months gives you a year of 360 days. Of course, we know now the year is actually 365 and a quarter days. So after a while, Israel's calendar started to get a little off. You know, summer was winter, winter was summer. So what they did is at a, a regular interval, they would add a 13th month, and that would shift everything back. It was like, it's like our leap year, except instead of just adding, adding a day every four years, they would add a full 30-day month I know Gail looked it up when we were talking about this in the adult class. Um, but anyways, so that's the new moon. It's not, a, it's not a, a pagan reference. It's actually to the first of the month celebration that Israel is to keep. But also, don't let them judge you in regard to a Sabbath. That's interesting. 
How does Jesus fulfill the Sabbath? How does Jesus fulfill the Sabbath? But anyways, verse 17, this is one of the most incredible verses I know about what we're talking about. It says, these are a shadow. Leviticus is a shadow. Israel's calendar in Leviticus 23 is a shadow. The entirety of the Old Testament is a shadow. These are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality is Jesus. The reality is Jesus. For thousands of years, God's people were looking at a shadow. Now just imagine in your mind, if you look at a shadow, you have a sense of what something is. Possibly its shape, possibly its size, maybe even its function, depending on how much detail is given in the shadow, but it's still a shadow. Think if you were to precisely evaluate an object based only on its shadow. It would be pretty lacking. The Apostle Paul says all of these things, they are a shadow. The reality is Jesus. Jesus was what was casting the shadow that constitutes our Old Testament. Jesus is the reality, the substance. The word that Paul uses there actually is usually means body. Jesus is that one, that thing that was casting the shadow that is the entirety of the Old Testament. If we can really understand this, then first of all, we'll read the Old Testament in a way that we never have before. And second of all, we will keep the Old Testament only as it is fulfilled in Christ. The heart of Israel's calendar? Jesus. The heart of Leviticus? Jesus. The heart of the law of Moses? Jesus. The heart of Joshua, Judges, Ruth? Jesus. The heart of the prophets? Jesus. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Daniel, Hosea, Obadiah, they were speaking of the shadow of Christ. But 2,000 years ago, the reality came into this world. And now our understanding of the shadow has completely changed. You see, here's where we see that changes nothing, changes everything. The shadow doesn't change because that shadow was an accurate representation of Jesus, but it's so much more enhanced and fleshed out and understood because now the reality is with us. So when you are reading Leviticus, what you should be thinking is this is a shadow of Christ. It's accurate, it's binding, but it's not nearly as complete, as whole, as full as the full revelation of Jesus that we receive in the New Testament. So important. These are a shadow. The reality is Jesus. You know, probably we should go back and reread Leviticus. Probably. Maybe some of you have been reading this way. Maybe some of you have not. 
But anytime you are picking up one of the 39 books of the Old Testament, this must be how you read it. Because if we read it any other way, we're actually saying Jesus didn't come into the world. If we're reading the Old Testament any other way, what we are actually saying is Jesus hasn't come into the world. Because the Apostle Paul, along with Jesus himself, along with every other author of the New Testament, makes it absolutely clear these 39 books, they're all about him. Every book, every chapter, every story, every prophecy, every sacrifice, every law, every expectation, it's all about Jesus. If you're reading the Old Testament any other way, you need to change. You need to change. It's all about Jesus. When you get to heaven, you're not going to bow down before the law of Moses. You're going to bow down before Jesus. When you get to heaven, you're not going to bow down before the prophecies of Isaiah. You're going to bow down before Jesus. So, oh man. All right, quickly. We got the basic principles. You guys all falling asleep? It's really hot in here. I'm getting really hot. But my voice is holding up, so the Lord must be saying, go more. Are you guys okay if I go a little more? You sure? I know I go long. I apologize. Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. This is one of my favorite passages about what we're talking about. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Now that Jesus has come, the Sabbath is not a day. The Sabbath is Jesus. Who would have ever thought that? God, who would have ever thought in, in, in setting aside a day and putting forward a calendar, you were talking about the eternal Son of God? This is the wisdom of God. This is just incredible. The Sabbath is not a day. The Sabbath is Jesus. And of course, what the author of Hebrews does with this is one step further. What the author of Hebrews says eternity is, when we cease to live in this life and begin living in eternity, what is that? Our eternal Sabbath rest. Eternity is the seventh day without end. That's how the author of Hebrews understands this. But Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you Sabbath. The Hebrew word Shabbat means to rest. Or in its noun form means rest. So just put the word Sabbath in there. Jesus says, come unto me and I will give you Sabbath. Sabbath is not a day. It's Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to go through these pretty quickly. You can write them down. Hopefully you're writing them down or you can forget them, I guess. I don't know. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Verses uh, six, seven, and eight. 
1 Corinthians chapter 5, 6, 7, and 8. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Okay, Israel's calendar, you hear the word yeast or leaven. What are you thinking of? Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You think Paul is just randomly picking this as a metaphor? Of course not. Paul knew Passover. Paul knew unleavened bread. He had kept it since his youth. Now he is applying it to a spiritual principle. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. So what the Apostle Paul is saying is for hundreds of years as Israel was getting rid of all yeast, of all leaven for those seven days during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, what they were pointing forward to is a far greater thing, getting rid of all sin, all wickedness, everything that is displeasing to God, removing it. That's what they were doing. That is the fulfillment of it. But even more, middle of verse 7, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast. Every single one of us, whether we were aware of it or not, have been keeping the feast of Passover. How? By accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, the Passover lamb. All of those millions of lambs that have been sacrificed for hundreds of years, every Passover, every 14th day of the first month as the sun was setting, they were all pointing to the perfect sacrifice of Jesus. How do we keep Passover? We don't keep it anymore by sacrificing a lamb. We keep it now by putting our trust in Jesus, by accepting his sacrifice. Because look at the language Paul uses. Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. He's not saying, therefore, let us kill a lamb and eat unleavened bread. Now, if you want to, you can. He's not saying don't, but he's certainly not saying you have to. That's not the appropriate way for us as followers of Jesus to keep the feast of Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. The real way that we keep that is by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus. What removes sin from our life? What removes yeast and leaven from our life? It's only the sacrifice of Jesus. What removes everything that is impure, everything that is displeasing to God? It's only the sacrifice of Jesus. The Feast of Unleavened Bread and Passover, we're looking forward to Jesus. Remember, that's the shadow. That's Jesus' the shadow. Jesus was standing right there, but all God showed Israel was his shadow. Jesus was standing there the whole time, but all they saw in the law was the shadow. Then Jesus comes. Wow. Now I see. Every time the New Testament uses an Old Testament passage, what are they doing? Every time the New Testament uses an Old Testament passage, what are they doing? They're making it about Jesus. When you sometimes do this, and you should, if you're reading New Testament and you see an Old Testament reference and you go back to it, you should do that. And sometimes you say, man, that's not what it says. How did Peter get that? How did Paul get that? Because they were absolutely convinced and consumed with the simple truth that the entirety of Scripture points to Jesus. That's how, if you want to understand how the New Testament uses the old, that's how it uses it. 
rips things out of context, gives meanings that don't see obvious at all, switches things around. It doesn't matter because as long as the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus, it's serving its main purpose. That's what Peter and Paul and John and the author of Hebrews and Jude, that's what they were convinced of. So when they wrote the books of the New Testament, that's what they did. That's what they did. Therefore, let us keep the feast. How? Without the yeast of malice and wickedness, but instead with the unleavened. NIV has yeast there, but it's, it's wrong. It's the exact opposite word. It's, it's, it's unleavened. Now, we don't have an entity that is unleavened, but it says with the unleavened of sincerity and truth. I'm sorry, NIV has without yeast. I didn't see that there. It does. So how do we celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread? In sincerity and truth, the unleavenedness of sincerity and truth, getting rid of the leaven of wickedness and malice. Jesus is the fulfillment. All right, a couple more real quick, and then we'll close things out. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. What's the next phrase? The first fruits. The first fruits. Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. Remember, as the year was beginning, as that first sheaf of barley came in, cut it off, wave it before the Lord. What were you saying? Lord, thank you, but we're trusting you for the rest. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He is the first fruits of all of those who have fallen asleep. Has anyone else been raised from the dead? Nope. Not talking about someone who died, was raised to this bodily life, and then died again. That's not what Paul means here by resurrection. Miraculous, awesome, incredible, but Lazarus has not been raised, Lazarus has not been resurrected. Lazarus was raised, but he died again. The only one who has been resurrected never to die again is Jesus. But he's not the end of the story. He's the first fruits. How do you know one day you are going to be resurrected? Because Jesus has been resurrected. That's how you know. You know that one day in Christ you will be resurrected because Jesus Christ, the first fruits, has been resurrected. Look at what Paul says in verse 23. He says, But each in its own turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. So we will be resurrected when Christ returns. And then the end will come. Well, we'll get into more of that in the eschatology class. But Paul is giving us an order here. Christ has been resurrected. He is the first fruits. He is the absolute, 100% assured guarantee that all of us who are in Christ one day will be resurrected as well. When? When he comes again. And then the end will come.
Okay? Let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verse 23. Romans chapter 8, verse 23. It says, Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. Now the Apostle Paul is not saying that the risen Christ is the first fruits. Now the Apostle Paul is saying the Holy Spirit is the first fruits. When was the Holy Spirit given? On the day of Pentecost, on that 50th day. For 1,500 years, what had Israel been doing on that 50th day? Offering God a sacrifice of their first fruits. Do you think it's any coincidence that Jesus died on Passover? Do you think it's any coincidence that the Holy Spirit was given on the day of Pentecost? No. Remember, the Israelite calendar is a shadow of the ministry of Jesus. Passover and unleavened bread were pointing to the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. The Feast of Weeks was the shadow pointing to the reality of the Father and Jesus sending his Holy Spirit into the world. So how do we keep the Feast of Weeks? How do we keep Pentecost? By receiving the Holy Spirit as we put our trust in Jesus. And look at what it says. The first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons the redemption of our bodies. Remember, the first fruits was not the full crop. The first fruits was not the entirety of the crop. The first fruits was just the beginning. So we who have the first fruits of the Holy Spirit, do we have everything that redemption promises? No. Do we have everything that salvation promises? No. Do we have full adoption? No. The fulfillment of these things is coming. But the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives as followers of Jesus Christ is our absolute guaranteed assurance that everything that God has promised, he will do. The Spirit of Christ living in you is the first fruits of God fulfilling everything he promised. So you are experiencing redemption. You are experiencing salvation. You are experiencing new life in Christ, but not as fully as you will. Why? Because the Spirit is here, but this is just the first fruits of the Spirit, not the fullness that we will enjoy when Christ comes again. James chapter 118, we won't read it, but there James says that we are a kind of first fruits. As we experience the new birth, James says in James 1.18, as we experience being born again, we now become a type of firstfruits. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. Probably doesn't say, behold, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Most English translations add that. What Paul actually writes is a bit more terse than that. What Paul actually writes is, behold, if anyone is in Christ, behold, new creation. I believe what the Apostle Paul is saying is that because you are new in Christ, it's a guarantee that the new heavens and the new earth are coming. 
the fact that you have been born again, born anew in Christ, is God's declaration to the entire cosmos that a new heaven, a new earth, a new creation is coming. Behold, if anyone is in Christ, new creation. You yourself are first fruits. Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. The Spirit is the first fruits of all the promises of God. You yourself are the first fruits of the new heaven and the new earth. You see how amazing Israel's calendar was? Well, we're so long here. But one more major festival. What closed out the year? What was the last major festival of Israel's calendar year? Tabernacles, also known as ingathering. When the full harvest came in. In Matthew 13, Jesus tells some parables. In one of them, he describes the end of the age as a harvest. At the end of the age, Jesus will send out his angels and gather the elect from all the four corners of creation. This is what John the Baptist said in Matthew chapter 3. Jesus is coming. And remember, he said his, his winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's gathering all the grain into the barn. And he's burning all the chaff. You see, the tabernacles is the final festival in the Jewish calendar. So we're waiting for that to be fulfilled. We're waiting for that final harvest. We're somewhere between the Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Ingathering. Because the harvest is coming in. The harvest is coming in. But Jesus hasn't returned. So there's still more to the harvest. We're still out there. That's why Jesus said, pray that my Father sends laborers into the harvest. Think of how many times the New Testament speaks of folks coming to Christ, folks coming into the kingdom as a harvest, as a gathering of crops. I mean, it's, it's, it's everywhere. Why? Because that was the foundation of the Feast of Ingathering, the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, when I brought this up a couple weeks ago, someone said, does that mean that Jesus is coming in the fall? Does that mean that Jesus is coming again in September, October? No, that does not. No man knows the day or the hour. He may come in September. He may come in October. I don't know. But it doesn't mean that he has to come in September, October, even though he did die on Passover, even though the Spirit was given on Pentecost. I don't believe that he's going to necessarily come in September or October. Although if he came this September, that'd be great. Well, if he came this afternoon, that'd be greater. So, but anyhow, apologize for going so long, but I appreciate your listening. And hopefully the Lord is reminding us, we've got to make it all about him. We've got to make it all about him. Whatever we're doing, if we're watching a college football game, if we're going to work, if we're relaxing, listening to a podcast, whatever we're doing, we've got to do it all for him. He is the fulfillment of everything. And in Christ, we keep everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you so much for giving us this time together today. And thank you for an opportunity, Lord, to consider the calendar that you gave to your people Israel, before your son came into the world. 
But thank you also for an opportunity to see what the coming of your son into this world did for the calendar. And I pray, Lord God, that you would, would always help us to get these things right. Lord, we don't want to just dismiss Leviticus, but we don't want to feel obligated to keep Leviticus as if Jesus has not come. We want to keep the entirety of Leviticus as it is fulfilled in Christ. As the Apostle Paul wrote, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, not let us ignore the feast, forget the feast. Therefore, let us keep the feast. So Lord, show us how to do that. Show us how to do that. Show us how to find the fulfillment of Christ in everything that is written on the pages of the Old Testament. And finally, Father, I pray that you would give us grace to live all of our days for you, to live our entire life in your presence. And we ask these things, Jesus, in your name alone. Amen. Amen.